1: Hello everyone and thanks for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriona Gold. I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today I'm very excited to be interviewing Ethan Blue about his new book, The Deportation Express: A History of America Through Forced Removal, which came out with the University of California Press in October 2021. Ethan Blue is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Western Australia. He specialises in US history, prison studies, and immigration history. His new book offers a history of the United States' systematic expulsion of undesirables and immigrants, told through the lives of the passengers who were transported out of the U.S. via deportation trains. This is a fascinating and very readable book, which I highly recommend picking up a copy of. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Ethan.
0: Thanks very much. Glad to be with you.
1: Great. Um, so we usually like to start by asking our authors to tell us a bit about themselves and their academic trajectory. So what have you been working on up to now, leading up to this book? Um, how did you come to write the book? And, you know, sort of how does it connect with that previous work? I'd love to hear more about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, or first off, I, I just want to acknowledge that I am on unseated Wajak Noongar Buja, um, and that and so I'm of... Ca- speaking to you from uh, Perth, Western Australia, but this is unceded New land and sovereign land and sovereignty has never been ceded. And I don't think sovereignty can really be ceded in this settler colonial um, situation. I come originally from, you know, my family's from Europe. We were migrants to the United States. I grew up on coast Miwok country in what is known as Northern California these days. Um, And Traveled around quite a bit. Did my undergrad degree in Virginia. Um, went to grad school at the University of Texas, and in Texas, I started studying the history of prisons. I actually, initially started wanted to study the history of cross border labor organizing. This was in the when uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement was being passed, uh, and so I had a real interest in migration of capital and migration of people and then how how labor could could mobilize and organize across borders too but while i was poking around in the archives um i learned that prisoners had been used to build the texas state capital in the 1880s and the the notion and this was during reconstruction so when um the the children of freed slaves are um when the the children of freed slaves were used, were criminalized for essentially nonsense reasons, and then were used to build a monument to state authority. Um, This was absolutely fascinating to me, and this was really a turn for me towards beginning to investigate the carceral state. So the modes of punishment, of criminalization amongst, um, particularly against people of color uh, and working class folks writ large. and, and always having it be connected to borders, too. And so that was my kind of first foray into this. I then wrote my first book, which was called Doing Time in the Depression, Everyday Life in Texas and California Prisons. And this was a, a really close read, um, kind of like thick description of everyday life in these two borderland prisons during the 1930s. And so in that book, I was trying to really understand the experiences of punishment and the complexities of racial for- racial gender formations and how punishment related to forms of political economy, right? So with mass unemployment and the depression, but also going with the rise of the New Deal social welfare state, what was going on behind prison walls? And so that book looked at um, arriving in each prison, so kind of the demography of incarceration. Um, then the, the middle part of the book looks at everyday life, so the kinds of labor prisoners were doing, the development of prison athletics and cultural programming and a radio prisoner radio shows, um, overt and covert forms of authority, so the ways that guards and prisoners interact differently in each system, so the California system, also is based on like the factory model and the big house model, whereas the Texas system is based on the plantation as its model. And seeing how these give rise to different kind of carceral modernities based around geography and history. Um, and then the book closes with the experience of leaving the prison, either on parole or through death. And so that was, that was yeah, my, my first major project. But then, as I was doing that work, you know, I was digging through the archives about parole, and I came across records of people who were being quote, you know, quote paroled for deportation. And this was totally fascinating to me, because what it was indicating was that a, a non citizen could leave the increasingly fortified militarized spatial containment of the prison, right, as long as they were willing to leave. The fortified, militarized, spatialized confines of the nation. Okay, and so again, these these connections between incarceration and locking people in, and deportation and locking people out. Th- this was starting to emerge for me as a really interesting set of, well, pr- you know, really profoundly troubling, but really interesting set of questions around the United States as a um, as as an imperial racially structured, you know, uh, capitalist state. And then, well, and then actually following on from there, I was doing some research into this prison doctor. And this guy was named Leo Stanley. This doctor was doing, um, these quite horrific testicular implantation experiments on prisoners, um, at San Quentin. And I was doing research on his medical experimentation and I found his journals and his diaries. And so Leo Stanley would ride these trains and he thought it was really fun. He kept these detailed notes of his journeys. Um, this combined two of his great loves, which was eugenics. Um, and, and, you know, the so-called bi- the biological protection of the nation from so-called unfit people. But he was also a really keen traveler. So he got to ride these deportation trains and, um, and you know, ethno-racially purify the nation in his vision and go on a fun trip. Uh, And so this is when the, the project really started to take shape for me.
1: Okay, great. That's, I think that's a really good, yeah, that's a really good lead into, uh, yeah, where we're going to go with, uh, yeah, with this interview. Um, yeah, I think the way that you look at these particular sort of figures, um, so both, you know, the, you've got the bureaucrats, the guards, and also the deportees, um, of course, um, in this, in the book is really, is really compelling. in the way you sort of tell these, these broader histories through, through their stories, Um and so I guess I guess a good way before we start getting getting into those um, in in more depth, uh, perhaps a good way to start getting into the book would be to ask, well, what what were the deportation trains? So so what what. <laughs> What what are the trains? What what are the routes they cover? When did when did they come about? And how long did they did they last? Um, and sort of who maybe sort of who who were they deporting broadly speaking? I think those that would be a good entry point into understanding this book for our listeners.
0: Thanks. Yeah, well, I, I guess to to, to to really get at it, you need to try to to, to back up to the ways that well, well, sort of the first sort of kinds of immigration restriction that the U.S. was really. And embracing was around trying to stop people from coming in. So around the, the host of anti-Asian immigration laws that develop, you know, from the 1870s and really pick up speed with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, the Geary Act in 1892, and all of the acts that continue on through the 1920s. But these acts very rarely defined... Well, they focused on stopping people from coming in, but they very rarely defined how to kick people out who are considered undesirable, uh, who are already within the country. And so this was a um, a real weak link in the creation of this sort of carceral, regulatory, anti-immigrant state that was being developed. And so there was never enough money that was being appropriated for this. The systems of removal were usually very locally driven. They were very expensive, they were ad hoc, um, and they were not systematized. And so by 1914, um, some bureaucrats within the Immigration Bureau are, are deciding that actually, you know, we need to have more... Uh, rationalization of governmental processes. And interestingly, there's some real elements in here of Washington, D.C.-based bureaucrats who are trying to control the labor processes of various regional immigration bureaus and trying to keep their costs down. And so what they decide is they would do experiments with having um, centrally organized deportation trains. And so... They drew on the economy of the rail, you know, this is the exemplary technology of industrial modernity, right, to try to keep down governmental costs for expulsion, to systematize it, and then send these trains on basically constant circuits through the country. And so starting in 1914, and then really running through the Second World War, these trains would make constant circuits around the U.S., uh, and they would... The the journey I kind of describe in the book starts off in Seattle, and then it stops in Portland and San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, uh, Buffalo, and then New York. And it it goes along the way and is picking up people who are gathered from across the Atlantic world. And it stops for non-citizens who have been convicted of any number of supposed offenses. So... If somebody has been convicted of a crime, then they are now rendered deportable um, because this is considered a violation of of immigration law, and they're no longer welcome. If somebody is simply very, very poor, then they can be retroactively, um, and and is collecting welfare, they can be retroactively deported as having been likely to become a public charge. Uh, If somebody has a cognitive difference or a physical disability, same thing, they can be deported. Um, or somebody's a political radical; they can be deported too, again as something that is is considered a um, yeah, a deportable offense. So anyway, the train stops in in New York, and all of these people from across the who have been gathered from these various carceral institutions, um, carceral welfare institutions, they're loaded loaded on a steamship at Ellis Island and sent across the Atlantic to Liverpool, Le Havre. Naples, uh, and, and beyond. Now at this point, and I try to trace the journeys of those folks, the transatlantic journeys at this point, the train then turns around and it makes the westbound journey. And I mean, they basically make stops wherever the immigration authorities in Washington, DC say, or tell the deportation agents, the train should stop. So in the one that I trace, they stop in Carbondale, Illinois, in, um, San Antonio, in New Orleans, in El Paso. And the westbound journey, rather than picking up people from across the Atlantic world, is picking up people from across the Pacific world, really. Or America's more explicitly colonized and colonial project. So it's gathering people from Mexico, but then also from China, Japan, the Philippines, South Asia. right? So you can see how... The eastbound and the westbound journeys really demonstrate global migratory patterns from around the world, again, the Pacific and the Atlantic worlds, into the U.S., which is becoming, you know, by 1900, really the center of global racial capitalism.
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this was, this is a part of sort of this, this history of deportation is something I knew nothing about before I started reading the book. And so it's been, it's been really interesting to discover, perhaps, um, I think I should say the book is structured, as you say, about these kind of the the trains stop in in particular cities, and you have chapters, um, 13 substantive chapters that go through sort of that, that each sort of visits, a particular sort of site and looks at a, you know a, a deportee a guard or other kind of um historical characters i suppose we might say um picked up at various sites um and i'm wondering i think yeah could you give us an indication just one quick empirical question how long could people expect to spend on a, could deportees expect to spend on a deportation train um and and maybe, maybe very briefly, what kind of um, conditions? I mean, uh, yeah, might might deportees expect to experience?
0: Yeah, um, well, the journey itself could vary. Um, maybe nine days, maybe seven to nine days, coast to coast. Um, the journeys themselves were aboard these uh, Pullman Tourister cars. And so, you know, when we think about deportation trains, you know, this is one of the first images that comes to mind are the, are the Nazi cattle, cattle trains, right? Um, this, was, this was very different than that. I mean, on the one hand, it was similar in that it had a similar project of ridding the nation of people who were considered polluted by these white supremacist, heteropatriarchal imperial lands. Um, whereas the Nazi regime was an explicitly murderous necropolitical regime. The American one was, um, it was a liberal democratic system structured by you know, racial capitalism and cisgendered heteropatriarchy and ableist and all of these things too, but it wasn't explicitly murderous in the ways that the Nazi regime was. And so the trains well they, they experimented with different kind of architectures of trains sometimes they used a um, a parlor car system or that had various state rooms and these actually kind of replicated for you know our Foucauldian listeners this rep- replicated the um, the cellular system that could break different kinds of category of people down into their own subset so a diseased person could want be in one room and a anarchist in another room and a criminal in another room and then a merely poor woman and her child in another room and there would be no quote unquote contagion among them and so they experimented with this kind of uh, system for a while but then as often actually more often than that as far as I can tell they just use an open open plan car. Um, Or they would have a different kind of car. Some some of the cars were more explicitly prison cars with bars across the windows. And this would be for supposedly more dangerous people who might have a criminal conviction or for anarchists or for Chinese who were considered almost to be an intrinsic escape risk by guards, apparently. Um, But then sometimes they would have cars for people who were considered less dangerous, but who were considered more you know, quote unquote, merely pathetic. So this would be people with disabilities, um, people that, like I said, who were very, very poor and who were considered a drain on the welfare state and who weren't considered a a flight risk. uh, And so they could have the less securitized, less explicitly militarized cars on occasion for these people. Um, So anyway, the journey was probably coast to coast, like I said, a week, nine days or so, but people could be, could have been detained for much, much longer periods um, before. So once somebody was swept into this broader, more coherent apparatus of capture, as I refer to it, um, they could languish in a jail and a mental institution for years, for, for months or years as their paperwork was being processed.
1: Right, yeah, yeah so, keeping so, those broader... Systems in view. Sorry. Sorry, Ethan. Oh,
0: yeah. No, not, a, not at all. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, thank you. That's that's really, really helpful. And I think, well, I was I was going to say, I think something you've started to get at here is, is the theoretical concepts. So you mentioned, you know, necropolitics, right? And obviously eugenics has come up. And I, I know you do a really good job in early on in the book um, and threaded, of course, throughout the book um, of explaining certain key concepts that, that your book is anchored in. So... You know, I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about those key theoretical concepts, um, why they're important to you and and perhaps thinkers who influenced you in the course of, of writing the book too. Um, so I, I know that you, you talk about racial capitalism as a key concept, settler colonialism, and also biopolitics, um, which as you know, can be a kind of uh, complicated sounding term doesn't necessarily have to have to be complicated to understand, um, but maybe uh, our listeners could could benefit from um, just a brief overview of, of what what these concepts are and, and why why they're important to to your research here and, and to, to what you're outlining here. Um, and I know you also draw on Du Bois throughout. If there's anyone mm. else you'd like to sort of give give a shout out to as sort of having influenced this, I'd be interested to to hear. Um, sure.
0: Thanks. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess inter- the, the biggest concept I think that I'm drawing on is racial capitalism or global racial capitalism. And so that's the idea. Well, first of all, it's insistence that ca- an insistence on the understanding that capitalism is always already structured and through racism and the reproduction of certain racial hierarchies and racial categories. And so it's a, it's a system through which the globe is partitioned into different areas and the people of the planet are partitioned into different categories um, in order to reproduce Hierarchies, but then also, especially to reproduce profits and profitability as a way of um, conceiving of spatial, political, racial, and biological organizations in the interest of profit making for capitalists. I mean the system. I mean the Cedric Robinson is one of the real foundational theorists here, um, and then there's a lot of other folks who have been inspiring along the way, Um, and. Global racial capitalism constitutes and subordinates people differently around the planet based around the particular conditions of um, exploitation, domination, the particular mode of production that's active in that particular moment and place. But everybody is subjected by it even if people are subjected by it differently um, through forms of hierarchy and for, through these forms of racial hierarchy. Now, because racial capitalism inter- is interested in the reproduction of this, these systems through time and in the reproduction of biological and subordinated as well as elevated populations through time, gender is going to be a central feature of racial capitalist systems, right? So thinking about forms of sexual desire, forms of sexual reproduction as these move through time. So, th- so gender is, is a fu- foundational category to global, to, to racial capitalism too. Uh, And then racial capitalism is useful also because it allows us to think in terms of scale. So you can think at the planetary scale, you can think at the national scale, you can think at the scale of the neighborhood, and you can think about the scale of the body, uh, which I think is all very productive for how we understand the forms of differentiation, control, carcerality, um, imprisonment, and, and so on. So anyway, that's that's one of the big concepts. But then, as, as we honed out a little bit, um, settler colonialism is another cru- crucial category. And so this is the idea. Uh, settler colonialism is different than extractive colonialism, as we understand it. They're both imperialist systems. They're both capitalist systems. Um, extractive colonialism is less about... Extractive colonialism is about sucking money from a system and drawing it into the metropole um, from elsewhere, whereas uh, settler colonialism is about taking a, a people from one place and then trying to replace and eliminate or absorb indigenous peoples. And so the U.S. is a settler colonial country, Australia, where I am now, also a settler colonial country, Um, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, other other kinds of settler, Anglophone settler colonial countries. Now, one of the things that's important to understand here is that the first order of business in a settler colony is to try to steal the land from indigenous peoples, right? And then render that land profitable by importing the people that the settlers want, Now, that's a a, a crucial kind of insight, but where deportation comes into this is that deportation is, I argue, a second order process of settler colonialism, because it's about fundamentally regulating who gets to be a settler and who doesn't. Sort of the biological categories of who's invited and who isn't, who is welcome and who is not. And then this brings us into the idea of biopolitics which is a fancy pants word, you know, coming out of the broadly Foucauldian tradition. Um, but really what, what biopolitics, I think, can mean is the ways that government and as a mode of government that tries to control the biological reproduction of the population through time and to nurture and sustain its desired population and get rid of the populations it doesn't like. And so here's where the Carceral welfare state and its deportation apparatus is really um, doing its ugly work. So it's in coming to define the people who are considered biologically unfit for reproduction and biologically unwelcome in the country. And so these are people with cognitive differences, people who are or who are not neurotypical. Um, people who are considered mad, and all of these categories change over time, right? There's no intrinsic definition of neurotypicality or madness. Um, same thing goes with ideas of sexual immorality, um, with ideas of criminality and political radicalism. And so all of these people are considered to be to, when they're brought into this new and expansive apparatus of capture, that I'm kind of talking about through the development of the system, um, this biopolitical, integrated, networked system, thanks to the train, is one of the things I argue, thanks to the growth of the telegraph and these new communication technologies, this creates a much more thoroughly integrated and networked carceral state based around expelling the so-called undesirable people.
1: Right. Right. Great. That's a really excellent summary of some, yeah, some pretty big concepts. But I think the way you look them together is very compelling as well. Um, and of course, your choice of, of thinkers um, you draw upon helps with that. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. Maybe we could um, move along to talk a bit about your choice of... Um, case studies, if you will, or people really, um, who, who you looked at uh, in the course of writing the book, because it's it's told through the stories um, of deportees as well as of guards and, and bureaucrats. Um, and I think maybe a good way to start getting into that would be to zoom in on a particular um, case study or person. Um, so perhaps we could go to chapter 11, Um, on San Antonio, or rather, uh, Louis Moe, who boards in San Antonio, um, if you'd be willing to talk a bit.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, and and so, I mean, I guess the way that I... Yeah, so the the book is structured around a a composite train's journey. Um, And so each chapter is a stop on the train's journey and tells the story of the individual people as they traveled from around the planet, you know, what drove them, from China, what drove them from Ireland? What drove them from Mexico? What drove them from the Punjab? And then their particular experiences within a particular city in a particular place. And so, yeah, it's tracing the journeys through racial capitalism and into the American carceral state. Now, the 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 the, the and I chose the 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 people because I read many, many hundreds of the case files of folks who were loaded aboard the the earliest deportation trains. I reconstructed the passenger lists from the earliest trains. And then I chose the people whose stories spoke to what I thought were the most interesting and important elements about how the deportation regime was defining undesirability. Um, But then also that gave a good spread of global migratory routes and of cities along the way. Within the U.S. for the train's journey, and so yeah, it's a kind of a spatial narrative that I that I employ. Um, But anyway, yeah, so so Louis Mo um, is from he's from um, Guangdong. He some some of the details of his story are a little bit fuzzy, um, but he leaves. China. He may or may not have worked in Japan for a little bit, and then because of the it's a, this is after the Chinese Exclusion Act, he can't get into the United States. Nevertheless, he uh, so he's excluded from the U.S., but like a, a quite a large number of Chinese, he goes to Mexico. And Mexico, because Mexico has a much more open immigration policy in the late nineteenth century, because Mexico is itself trying to modern you know, quote unquote, modernize under the Porfirato regime, and so is is much more welcome, welcoming and much less anti-Asian than Americans are, than yeah, than the US is. So Louis Moe is one of the these folks who then moves to Mexico and he's living in Mexico. Um until the Mexican Revolution starts, so then there's this radical expansion, actually, of anti-Chinese violence and anti-Chinese um, animus in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, when anti a lot of anti-capitalist and Mexican nationalism. Um, you know, some gets directed towards the U S but a great deal of it gets directed, you know, punching downward as it were against the Chinese and against Asians. And so there's a great deal of violence against Chinese. Um, then you've got Pancho Villa who leads a raid into Columbus, New Mexico. And this is part of the complexity of the Mexican revolution itself. Um, this is a big battle. Pancho Villa then returns into Mexico the u.s then sends General Blackjack Pershing into Mexico in order to capture Pancho Villa Now the Mexican government isn't super supportive of this because they would be seen to be capitulating to the you know the Leviathan to the north um, and that would destabilize Mexican power uh, and so the us so they don't have the infrastructural capacity. The U.S. Army and the Quartermaster Bureau doesn't have the infrastructural capacity to supply themselves, and so they wind up relying on Chinese uh, Mexicans to do the fundamental infrastructural work of resupplying and supporting and fortifying the U.S. Army on its raids through Mexico, trying to kill Pancho Villa. Uh, and Louis Mo is one of these people, and. So blackjack, you know, General Blackjack Pershing, you know, he does not capture or kill Pancho Villa, it's an abysmal failure. Um, but one of the things that you actually see here is quite interestingly, some of the origins of what becomes known as third country nationals. So the ways that the US military in its overseas adventures relies on, say, people from the Philippines at their bases in Afghanistan relies on people from the Philippines and their bases in Iraq. Anyway, this is is the origin of that kind of third country national policy, or at least an early version of it, in that Louis Mo and the other Chinese folks were fundamental to this military practice. Anyway, um, the U.S. Army returns, they enter the United States, and um, Louis Mo and others know that they'll be killed or that there's a likelihood that, that they'll be killed if they remain in Mexico. And so Pershing then makes uh, lobbies as a, in this kind of patronage sort of way to have Louis Mo and the other Chinese refugees um, return with him into the United States in contravention of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So they get special dispensation. Um, there's more details to it. I've probably already gone longer than we've got, on, than we've got time for, but Louis Mo winds up along with the other Chinese refugees being confined to working on American military bases because this is seen as a way of not um, competing with free white American workers if they're confined to military bases um, and doing military infrastructural work within the United States. But anyway, after a while, Louis Mo is arrested because he's stolen a little bit of money from the shop where he works and he's then um, also, he gets in trouble because he's accused of flirting with a white woman. And in Texas, this is you know, a very dangerous thing for a uh, Chinese person to do. He then is eventually locked up in the Southwestern Insane Asylum uh, and is is uh, appears to be suffering from late stage syphilis uh, and through the records talks about the experience of First of all, his his journeys through the world around the world, but also his experience being locked up in the racially segregated southwestern insane asylum um, in San Antonio, and he talks of his experiences and his visions, which are quite interesting in terms of looking at the perspectives of people who are considered mad. Um, before he is eventually loaded on the deportation train, sent to San Francisco, then across the Pacific. And eventually, uh, to his uh, well, you know, he's supposed to be sent to his uncle's shop on uh, on Winglock Street in Hong Kong. I don't know that he ever gets there um, because the records run out at that point.
1: Right. Okay. So yeah, clearly linked into much broader histories and, and stories. Right. And yeah, things. This doesn't. Nothing begins or or ends with the deportation train or the deportation journey itself I think that's something that you make very clear in in all of these um in all of these chapters which are quite sort of sensitively written um I also yeah I want to say I I don't know if you want to say anything about this because I'm I'm putting you on spot a little bit here but um but about the kind of the the gender aspect which we haven't talked so much about um you know, in in chapter three, Portland, um, and of course, elsewhere in the book, but especially here, you you talk about um, how uh, prostitution or sex work um, was sort of um, criminalized or sort of grounds for deportation, um, and the experiences of sort of women who who go through that. I, I wonder if You might be able to say something about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so, um, yeah, accusations of sexual immorality are really crucial here. And so this is, again, part of the the biopolitics of this system and the notion of how to protect the white family and its reproduction across time and into the future. And so, I mean, part of the origins of the anti-Chinese movement was the accusation that Chinese women were prostitutes. And so the Page Act in 1875 is, is about stopping Chinese women from coming into the U.S. And the, the, the threat that the the anti-immigrant folks saw was that, you know, these were a danger to, you know, healthy, white, masculine, patriarchal families that would be subverted by sex work and sexual immorality uh you know quote unquote sexual immorality and so yeah the chapter in portland really focuses on the delineation of kinds of sexual immoralities and differences um i i, I focus on a on a woman who's a sex worker who is uh as she explains from belgium um Germaine monet is her name she gets arrested in portland uh working in the in the um kind of the red light district. And she actually winds up being able to trick immigration authorities by giving a false itinerary and a false name. And as a result, she's able to stay in the US for an additional five years. Now her carceral experience is that she's locked up initially with a, 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 re, a so-called rescue home, the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, I think it was called in Portland. And these were institutions that were designed to, you know, quote unquote, rescue fallen women um, by teaching them to be good domestics and good uh, mothers and good, good obedient wives, essentially. Uh, all of this was also in the context of the so-called white slave panics, and this was a, a series of moral panics around sexual immorality, but really about women who were unsupervised working in the city um, and away from patriarchal control. There's a lot more to it than that. I mean, it's a, it was a highly um, racialized, highly ethnically complicated set of processes. But nevertheless, this was a major panic going on in the early 20th century, too, that uh, drove out. A, a fair number of men and women who were accused of, of this kind of sexual immorality. I mean, one of the other people in the, in, in um, Portland is, uh, is a guy who is, he's a British guy and he's accused of hitting on, uh, uh, he's, he's 20, 21, 22. I can't remember, but he's accused of, of sexually pro- propositioning a young man at the, at the YMCA. And so he also is considered beyond the pale of sexual immorality. He's has same-sex desire. Um, And Portland and the Pacific Northwest was also at the same time in the midst of this uh, anti-gay panic. Um, And so he really fell afoul of this system, too. And again, all of this is about the, the ways that gender... And women's experiences, but then also um, experiences of, of sexual difference and homosexuality, um, or alternative, you know, visions of sexuality, um, would be criminalized because, again, it threatened this heteropatriarchal family, as as was being seen as the the, as the foundation of the U.S. as the settler as a settler state.
1: Right. Great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, intersections are very sort of very clear, um, in your writing. I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, I wonder if we could pivot, um, slightly, uh, to talk about who was behind these trains. So you've said, you've said a little bit about, you know, Washington, broadly speaking, um, bureaucrats. I think it would be nice if we, if we could talk a little bit about, you know, who, who were those sort of, uh, yeah, those those bureaucrats. Just in brief, um, who who and where was coming up with this idea for the train and sort of refining it, um, and also who was working on the trains? You know. Um, who are, who are the guards I mean I'm also curious about you know immigration inspectors obviously turn up um, in the book um, enough uh, to, to maybe warrant more discussion who, who were these people you you do um, mention something interesting about sort of immigrants themselves becoming uh, enforcers and I, I wonder um, or some some immigrants that is uh, I wonder if that's something something that we could discuss a little bit
0: yeah absolutely um, well I one of the things, and I'm always very interested in, in who is the state, and what is the state, and how do we conceive of the state? Because uh, it's it's not straightforward, and the state is not a monolith. Um, and there are different battles and conflicts and struggles within it, as well as individual people. And so part of what I've I've tried to do here and then in another article that's kind of affiliated with the book is to look at the people who build the state, like who are the actual workers who do this and who make this? I mean, the state as a system is always more than the sum of its parts, but the the laborers who build this infrastructure are crucial. Um, So, I mean, some of the main folks I look at is it Well, one of the main folks I look at that I think is just a really interesting kind of tragic character is named Henry Weiss. And Henry Weiss is, is uh, born... His family is German. He's born in what was then called Constantinople. Uh, he moves to the U.S. He speaks something like seven languages. He's an enormously cosmopolitan person. Um, he... He comes to the U.S. He marries. He moves to New York. He, he gets a job with the Immigration Bureau as a translator, and then moves across the country. He he basically, from his personnel file, it gives every indication that he's basically maltreated, uh, and and other people with less skills than him seem to be getting promoted faster than he is, um, and there may be you know no shortage of ethnocentrism in his own experience. Nevertheless, he's a really hard worker. He's really ambitious. And it's pretty clear that he sees working for the Immigration Bureau is his path to upward mobility. This is his path to American belonging. And this is a very American story, right? You know, you work for the American state and you belong more or less. You know, you certainly belong more than you would otherwise. Um, And so Weiss eventually really makes his big break in the Bureau when authorities say, Hey, this guy speaks seven languages. Let's send him through all of the, you know, insane asylums in Oregon to figure out who we can deport and then we'll save some money. They realize he's good at this and they put him in charge of running the first deportation trains. Um, the next guy and he's, he's the main deportation agent for the next couple years. Um, the next guy they hire, Uh, is is named um, uh, Leo Russell, and he is an enormously talented clerk and bureaucrat. And he works his way up the system through filing and indexing correspondence. And this is the kind of thing that seems just crushingly boring and unimportant. Um, But when you think about the creation of these complicated systems, filing and indexing correspondence is crucial. Because this is the production of bureaucracy itself, right? The correspondence and the communication beyond the individual level. This is how bureaucra- bureaucracies work. And so this is, this is fundamental to the creation of this kind of networked power. And so he works his way up the ranks. And he, like I say, he's enormously talented. He retires as a relatively young man and actually dies relatively young. Now, he's replaced by a guy named Ed Klein, and Klein, according to his personnel records, is basically a slacker for much of his youth. He gets his jobs, as every indication shows, through nepotism. Uh, these are all white guys, by the way. Weiss is an immigrant, so he's on the edges of whiteness. Um, Russell and then Klein are both, you know, they're, they're pretty un- they're unalloyed, considered to be unalloyed white people, uh, white men. Anyway, Klein basically is not a particularly um, talented guy, but he's persistent. And he essentially, it's kind of, you know, to be a little bit flippant about it, he's a, a, uh, by many appearances, a mediocre white man who works his way up through these systems, through persistence, diligence, and um, some political acumen. And then he really finds his feet and then runs these deportation trains up through the Second World War. And in fact, he, he um, is, is um, that, uh, he, you know, he's celebrated by his colleagues upon retirement for his successfully using the trains too to move uh, Japanese Americans from the coast into Japanese internment camps during World War II. Yeah, so these are some of the, the main people who run the trains, but then there's also the the private guards who work for Southern Pacific who work for the great Northern railroad. And so these are private guards who are empowered by the state to have this fundamental policing function, including the exercise of violence. Um, and yeah, so private guards are, are on in play here because of this partnership between the state and the private railroad firms. But then you've also got, you know, the guy who I kind of introduced the story with Leo Stanley, you know, so there's a doctor who is aboard these trains, too, to make sure that um, everybody is well enough on the train, so, so that they're, they're well enough that they don't die. They're well enough that they're not disruptive. Um, and so, again, this is the difference between the Nazis and the Americans. The Americans don't want you to die on the train. Uh, what happens on the other side of the border? Not the Americans' problem. Um and so the the doctor on the train is really there less to make sure that people are well than to make sure that the system doesn't get slowed down by illness, by other kinds of disruption.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I there's so much more I would like to ask about um I mean, especially the the bureaucrats, since that's my <laughs> that's my area. Um I think I thought uh, I, I think it was um, really interesting. I think. I think. Uh, yeah, Russell you, Leo Russell. You know, one of the the clerks you, you talked about. I, I thought it was really interesting. That you said he he also worked during World War One, right? Um, for the Bureau of Naval Intelligence, and apparently did them a great service. Who knows what, but he did. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And And so I, I was never able to track down those records, uh, but he did great. And, and, and so this also shows the 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 Porousness between you know the domestic forms of control and the overseas military forms of control, and so scholars who work on the the kind of the dialectic between domestic policing, domestic violence, and international policing and international violence, you know, this is this is precisely that kind of um, system. Well, yeah, these people show how there's not a line between the domestic, the, the the exercise of control and violence and other kinds of control in the domestic realm, as well as international war fighting. So, yeah, yeah, these are, right. there's a, very, very you, much of a feedback.
1: Yeah. You, you use the term, yeah, infrastructural power, right. Which others have, have coined, um, to sort of, yeah, connect these, I think to, um, I think that's quite that's quite helpful as well. Um, I, I wonder if if we could uh, move now to sort of talk about the borders um, being policed as part of this this process. So, I mean, the, the U.S.'s main border of concern, um, I suppose, being the U.S.-Mexico border, although the U.S.-Canada border, of course, does feature um, in the book, but it it might be. It might be good to talk about how how the US-Mexico border sort of was functioning um, at this time and maybe sort of bring us maybe bring us through to the present day a bit. Um, I just wanted to mention one thing I found really interesting and I I had something I hadn't thought about was... um, and and resonated with the more contemporary discussions about the uh, the environmental destruction involved in building sort of the border wall, right? Trump's border wall was how you you acknowledge the sort of the massive deforestation associated with building the railroads and the environmental impact, and so that's something that could maybe be sort of drawn out more. Um, but anyways, that's a that's a slight detour. But I thought some, that's something I thought was really interesting. Um, but in general, um, yeah, what did the U.S. Mexico border look like at the time? Uh, these trains were in operation. That might be an interesting yeah. something to explore. Yeah. Well, I'm,
0: so I mean, I am no, I'm glad you brought up the point about the, the the massive deforestation and so on, because yeah, a big part of this, the U.S. as a settler colony, is the radical transformation of the relationships between the human and the more than human world, and the commodification of everything, um, and transforming the more-than-human world, as well as humans, into abstract commodities who can then be profited from. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's a key part of the conceptualization of the book, too. Um, but in terms of what's going on at the Mexican, uh, along the southern border, well, the one of the things that scholars more recently have talked about is the the complexity of the border, right? We sometimes imagine it, you know, in the Trumpian sense as this hard wall that is just fundamentally designed to stop movement. But at the same time, we've got, as I was saying earlier, in the era of NAFTA and before and after, the border as selectively porous. And so capital and goods and commodities should be able to move across but then people, you know, then that's a question mark um, for, for, for these, you know, capitalist, nationalist systems. Um, and so one of the things that I, that I kind of explore in the book is, is based around uh, two different groups of people's experiences. On the one hand, I talk about the experience of, uh, in the Carbondale chapter, the experience of these Mexican track workers. And during World War I, the U.S. wants Mexican track workers to come into the country, even in, in, um, and they get kind of special provision because they're considered necessary wartime workers. Otherwise they would have been excluded. So for these families, for these Mexican track worker families who move, who do tons of infrastructural work around the country, but particularly in the West, um, the border for them is relatively porous. They can cross the border in order to render vital services to the country um, as long as they never run afoul of the law and as long as their labor is still considered desirable. And I tell the story of these two brothers, one of whom uh, is considered uh, mad and is also incarcerated um, in In St. Joseph, Missouri, through a very interesting and weird set of processes and and people who bring him into the system, who we don't need to get into at the moment. Um, But in any case, because he is considered mad, he and his brother get deported uh, because they are no longer profitable, welcome people. Um, And so they demonstrate the border as kind of porous infrastructure, so long as you don't do anything that gets you in trouble. Um but then the other story I tell is of these Japanese men who leave Japan. They then travel to Peru. They live through Peruvian comprador capitalism and so-called coolie exploitation. Um, they become seamen and travel through and uh, travel around sort of the British maritime networks along the Pacific coast of South America. Before they go to Mexico, they find similar kinds of anti-Asian violence that we talked about with Louis Moe. But in any case, they're working in Tampico, which is a center of the Mexican as well as British and increasingly American oil industries, before they decide that Tampico is no longer viable for them. And they then move up through Mexico and then try to enter the United States. They get caught. Trying to sneak across the border outside of El Paso. Um, the US Mexico or the, the Border Patrol had not yet been formally instituted yet. The Border Patrol is developed in 1924, and so this is a little bit before that, but there had been Chinese inspectors and customs officers who were particularly geared towards um, capturing Chinese migrants. Um, and so these guys get caught trying to sneak across the border. I mean, the hard lesson that they learn is that if you're going to try to get across the U.S.-Mexico border as it's increasingly policed, you can't really do it on your own. You need to hire a smuggler. You need to hire a professional because they know the ways through. Um Nevertheless, their experience is not of the border as selective po- uh, the selective porousness of the border, but this is a hard border. this is a militarized border. this is a border where you can get shot um, which was different than the, the Mexican my uh, track workers experience. Yeah, so you can see both right. of these things really um, forming at the time.
1: right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so dif- differential experiences of the border. Um exactly. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um thank you. Uh yeah, I think that's that's a really crucial insight um yeah, on really the nature of the border and which sort of continues of course um to this day, right? I mean, would you I don't know if you'd like to say anything about how 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 the book sort of connects to contemporary happenings at the border i mean obviously yeah this this fantasy of the border is a hard sort of just a hard wall a boundary um is something that we can unpack through through the book um any other sort of points of resonance that might be worth contemplating
0: yeah well i think so just getting back to the ideas of biopolitics and necropolitics these always work together right the biopolitical is always founded upon the necropolitical the 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 necropolitical being bloody racist violence. Not always racist, but but yes. Nec- yeah. Anyway, so the, the fundamental violence upon which modern states are built can be considered necropolitical violence because it's based around ultimately killing people. Um, one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that the deportation system effectively sublimates... The necropolitical violence of the previous deportation systems, which tended, as I said, to be um, yeah much more violent, much bloodier, more locally based, and it systematizes it and spatializes it. You know, it turns the necropolitical violence into spatial control and spatial distribution. So it sublimates that kind of violence into spatial distribution. Now there's still kinds of spasmodic eruptions of violence of anti-immigrant violence across the 20th century uh in the 1930s in all sorts of other localized anti-immigrant necropolitical violences but one of the things that i try to do because i was finishing the book in the era of trump uh well then i mean first of all the book was trying to historicize the growth of mass deportation you know Well, you know, writ large, my first book, just backing up a bit, was trying to historicize the emergence of mass incarceration, this one trying to historicize mass deportation as two related processes. Um, Nevertheless, part of my argument is that, you know, Obama and Clinton and George W. Bush were massive deporters of people. You know, they also oversaw massive incarceration and mass deportation. But one of the things that I think drove the emergence of Trump's base and their mobilization was the idea that this sublimated violence of spatial removal didn't satisfy the kind of racial catharsis that previous forms of of anti-immigrant violence had satisfied. And so... The over of this violence, you know, saying that, you know, got to take the gloves off, you know, or the other kinds of metaphors of like, we're really going to let the immigration, the border patrol do their thing. All of this was a call to that kind of cathartic racial violence that I think is really central to so much of American history, at least as a major strand of American history as a settler invader colony that is trying to restrict who gets to be a settler and who doesn't. And so I think that was a real source of Trump's appeal, and it continues to be in these kind of far-right politics. Um, yeah, the, the spatial removal of the Democrats wasn't adequate to scratch that itch in this era of late capitalist neoliberal anxiety.
1: Right. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's a really good, uh, yeah, bringing us through to the present day. I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Yeah that contextualization um yeah thank you for that um i think as we're approaching an hour now uh of interviewing so yeah applauding your stamina here um i would like to uh ask um what's next for you or you know what are you working on now or, or planning to work on if, if you'd like to say any more if maybe it connects to the book maybe it doesn't i think i'd, I'd love to hear about that
0: sure um yeah, I've got a few a few things that I'm thinking about. I'm I'm kind of um, well. I I've been doing work with a group called the First Nation Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, which is a a um, Aboriginal-led group of folks that are trying to have not so many First Nations people get killed in police custody in Western Australia. Um, I I've been doing some work with them for the last ten years or so, and so trying to do some more writing about and on behalf of the watch committee. Um, there's a, a possible project around a global history of Japanese internment camps, um, that I am, uh, involved in as well. And there's some other stuff that is on route too. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, it's, a it's all pretty heavy stuff, um, to be writing about, but I think, you know, In order to understand we we got to understand how the world got to be the way that it is um in order to imagine how we might be able to make the world a little bit better so that's that's where i'm coming at this from
1: absolutely right yep that's the critical scholar's task right um yeah uh so thank well thank you for doing that um and uh yeah i think that's a good place for us to end so this has been Catriona Gold speaking with Ethan Blue, who is the author of the fascinating new book, The Deportation Express A History of America Through Forced Removal, released in October 2021 with the University of California Press. If you'd like to pick up a copy, please consider ordering directly from UC Press or supporting your local bookstore. Friends, don't let friends buy from Amazon. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network. And thanks again for joining me, Ethan.
0: Thank you.